Welcome to Swanglinese, the only podcast talking the language of business here in the Middle East. Your hosts, Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Andermo, give you their own insights as well as interviewing business leaders in the region to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. Barry, Oscar, let's talk Swanglinese. Hello and a very warm welcome to this episode of the podcast. In the virtual studio this week, I have the pleasure of the company of Mohammed. Mohammed, how are you today? I can't complain. I can't complain. It's been a good day so far. That's good to hear. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us uh, on this uh, episode of the podcast. For our listeners, we always like to talk to people like yourself who've done some pretty amazing things, and uh, it's a chance for you to tell us about that. So what we like to start with is to uh, to ask you to rewind the timeline a little bit back to wherever you'd like to in terms of your professional journey so far, uh, telling us how you got into what you are doing, telling us a bit about yourself. Uh, and like I say, you can go back to university, you can go back to your last, last role, you can just go back 10 minutes if you like. But it's up to you just to uh, say, you know, where did it all start for Mohammed? <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much. So uh, a stroll down memory lane. Yeah. Um, so I'm a retailer by profession. I, I stumbled uh, by pure accident into being a retailer um, as a choice between joining uh, the U.S. Armed Forces or um, going into something a little less exciting like retail. And I opted to join the training program of Macy's. Um, Spent my first six years in the the Macy's organization, learning how the retail world comes together when it comes down to department stores, buying, planning, finance, and the likes of. And, you know, took a liking to it. I think it was, you know, a calling at the time. Um, And spent the better part of the last 20 years in various functions, uh, but in, in retail, whether it's the box department stores, off-price uh, retailing like Ross stores and um, luxury retailing such as Gucci, Prada, Miu Miu and, and, and the like. So uh, my last six years were the ones that uh, probably led me to where I am today, where you know I, I was mandated to kind of take the brick and mortar organization of the company I worked for and uh, digitize it into an omni-channel experience where customers can interact with you on various channels such as e-commerce, social channels, um, and obviously in store and tie that together into some, you know, harmony of digital. Mm-hmm. So I was very fortunate to to lead an organization from inception to you know north of hundred million dollars and and built the region's largest uh, luxury marketplace, uh, a website called Munas. Uh, and that experience kind of you know cemented, if you would, um, the 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 concepts of what it means to take a, a single channel brick and mortar operation into the digital world. Um, back in early 2019, um, things got to you know a stasis level where it's the normal humdrum of the business, and I started to get antsy. You know, having lived through six years of chaos and, and, and startup, or you know, and, and and hiring teams from from the ground up and, and putting together the processes. Once everything started to settle down and it became more about growth rather than build, I started to get a little uh, antsy, like I said. So, um, you know, over over Christmas holidays, I, I was just kind of talking to friends who. Um, you know, either own restaurants or investing in the in the hospitality space, and started to hear the word cloud kitchen coming about. No clue what a cloud kitchen was, so um, you know, started asking friends if I can go visit a cloud kitchen. How does it work? What does it do? Um, restaurant owners were reporting north of 20, 30 percent of their revenue coming from food aggregators such as Uber Eats or Deliveroo mm-hmm. and the likes of. 
And I was like, oh, well, this is exactly what happened to retail, but it just happened about 20 years ago, right? Where customers would walk in and purchase their, their merchandise from the store, but now they're falling on platforms like Amazon or, you know, going to www.store.com. I mean, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever channel that is, it, it's, it's the same thing. And when I take a closer look, I realized that this was happening under our nose, but there was no technology enabling these restaurateurs to cope with the digitization. So, um, you know, I've always been, you know, a little bit of an entrepreneur and, and uh, you know, fascinated by this digital space stuff. So, um, you know, started pondering it for about six months. And around the summer of 2019, I think I managed to uh, muster up the courage I needed to to let go of my, my corporate job and, and jump neck deep into startup land. Um, so the company was born in October of 2019. My lifelong best friend, uh, somebody I've known for 40 years, and I have full faith and trust in him, was uh, one of our co-founders, and or is one of our co-founders, and introduced us to um, our CTO. And the, the three of us kind of sat around uh, a late evening in a, in a restaurant and um, you know had dinner and discussed the matter at length and kind of handshook and this is going to be our future for the next few years. And, uh, Let's just get into it. So that's how it all started. Um, you know, it, it, pure passion towards digitizing sectors, um, having, you know, very little information or actually zero experience in the restaurant world, but the parallels of digitization across sectors still hold true. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the spark that ignited it all. Right, I see. And I mean, you said you're in, in retail, you know, up to 20 years ago, and, and digitization wasn't really on the cards. The reason for this question is that was your exposure to that side of things, was that something that you had already been exposed to in terms of helping these platforms or helping these brands move into the digital age? Or was that a learning on the job kind of thing as well for you? I think it started out, I mean, if I zoom out to about 20 years, I'd say I was learning on the job, you know, learning mm-hmm. from phenomenal people that have either done it before or were masters at this, um, at this skill. Um, and then the last six years, I was, you know, fortunate enough to be in a position to do it from the ground up with somebody who, you know, had the aspiration or an organization that had the aspiration, but didn't really know where to start. So, um, you know, I got to practice what I've been refining as a skill set and a toolkit, um, you know, in the real world. And, and, and sometimes when you're in the, in the helm, um, you know, it's the, some of the decisions are a, a little less certain. Um, you know, you don't have all the data sets that you need to make informed decisions and the burden of responsibility on getting it right or wrong uh, lays squarely on your shoulders. So it's a different sense of responsibility, but definitely falling back on a lot of skill sets that have accumulated watching others do it. Right, right. No, very interesting. And so you're saying that the um, the idea for your latest venture, we're going to talk about that in depth because it intrigues me massively and it's, it sounds really, really, really cool. Um, you, you you sort of are in this position of, of, of thinking, right, I'm going to let go of my corporate ties. You said it was about six months until that handshake at the, the restaurant for everybody to, to get going. Yeah. How, 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 T- tell us a bit about that transition for you as an individual, going from what most perceive as security of, of a corporate role and, and knowing what's happening to going, right, jumping in. How, how was that process for you in terms of the decision, the handshake, and then to the point where you're launching? How, how was that for you? In one word, absolutely terrifying. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and yeah, I can't tell you um, the amount of sleepless nights that I've had. I had finally got to the pinnacle of my career. I was in the C-suite of a very large organization that, you know, was cross-border in many countries and ran in a division of about 800 people. I was well-paid. Um, things were good. I mean, it was the ideal of, you know, my starting career of, of 20 years. So to shake everything up and to go to a state of zero was nerve wracking, you know, and, and, and the one thing that always kept on percolating to the top was if you believe enough that this is the right path for you, you know, you just, you just got to leap. There's never, you know, I would, I would look at my bank account and say, do I have enough money to sustain, you know, the not getting paid for the first year? Do I have enough money to, to, to be able to bounce back into the corporate world if this all comes crumbling down? Can I pay my rent? Can I, can I put food on the table? And the short answer is you never have enough. You never have mm -hmm. enough time. You never have enough money. There is no ideal scenario where everything and all the stars lined up for you to be able to to do this safely um so there's an element of of, of trust in yourself um in, the, in, in your you know division or the leap of faith that you want to take um that that hopefully is enough to propel you into making such a, a big leap um but it was nerve-wracking and, and if i reflect back on the first six months from departing my corporate career into the startup um the one thing that you know, always comes up in my mind is uh, the loss of identity. Right. So I actually had to Google it because I was like, okay, I'm sure somebody else has felt like this when they did this, right? And then apparently it's a coin term called loss of identity, where you've spent the better part of, you know, two decades being one individual. And, you know, over the last six or so years, I was the senior vice president and chief digital officer, blah, blah, blah. Right. And that comes with a lot of power, you know, I mean, 800 people and, 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 and the likes of. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're no longer negotiating with vendors or customers as the behemoth that is your organization. Now you're a startup with zero clients and two employees and, you know, barely enough money in the bank account to do anything. And you stop identifying with the person that you looked at the mirror at for the last six months and you have to assume this this new role and i think you know if for your listeners the issue here is that you associate yourself so much with your corporate persona that you forget that there's somebody behind that that is capable of doing so much more yeah you know? and 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 that took you know, to be quite transparent, that took almost nine months to get over, you know, yeah. I, I, there was a lot of, you know, emotions, I would say, um, around wrapping my head around, you know, that I'm no longer that guy, I'm a new guy, you know, and, yeah. and, and when you come to terms with that, things just become so much better. But it, it, yeah. it is one of the hardest things that I had to overcome. Really interesting point. And, and so true. And like you say, that it, I would say even nine months is quite a short period of time for you to get over that. Because I think a lot of people take a lot longer to realize that, yeah, I don't have that brand behind it, uh, behind me. I'm me. They have these things where they're like, well, I'm not sure that I, you know, the what do you call it? The imposter syndrome kind of thing is, I'm, should I be here? Should I be doing that? But once you get your head around that and you realize how 
powerful you actually can be when you focus on what you want to do. Um, I think that's a huge step for a lot of people that start to go into business. So it's really, really cool that you mentioned that. And that, like I said, I think nine months is actually still a pretty short, short period of time to go from what you were in terms of the the, the corporate personality to to Muhammad as the 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 startup and and the the entrepreneur, as it were, as it were. Which is a, is a good uh, segue into your current situation. So you made this decision, you had that handshake over it. Tell us a bit more about GrubTech in terms of what it is and why this was that leap of, of, of faith. You said because you saw some of the similar kind of uh, patterns happening in the F&B, the restaurant industry, as you had done in retail. But tell us a bit more about this, the, the, the whole uh, GrubTech uh, product or service, if you like, in terms of what it is. Sure. So, um, you know, we like to position ourselves as a, an all-in-one platform for restaurants and cloud kitchens to manage their entire operations. So everything from, you know, managing their menus across Uber Eats or across their point of sale and their location to the actual point of sale that they use as a cash register to transact with their customers to what happens behind a, uh, behind a house and, and the kitchen where they have kitchen display systems and how they cook the food, prepare the recipes and ultimately put the food in a box and ship it out to you or on a plate and, and bring it out to, to, um, to the tables. And wrapped around all of that is the analytics that come along with it. So we've got, you know, a, a, a fair number of modules, if you would, that allow the restaurants to perform at their best and focus on what they really do best, which is cooking food. Mm-hmm. So instead of them having to wrangle pieces of paper or, you know, um, manage, you know, multiple technology stacks that are, you know, produced by different vendors and, and having their own IT departments, having to, you know, again, wrangle all this data into one box so that they can make informed decisions about how they run their business and, you know, how do they you know, not only survive, but thrive as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, that was the premise of, of what we've built. And, you know, if I fast forward now two years into this journey, you know, we're, we're operating in 14 countries. We've got customers in 14 countries all the way east to um, Indonesia and Pakistan, Singapore, those six countries of the GCC in Africa, we're in Egypt and South Africa, just activated our UK um, operations there and um, the US is soon to follow. So, you know, it, it, we, we obviously COVID, you know, just kind of accelerated the adoption of technology in the restaurant space in the cloud kitchen world. So we were lucky enough to catch that tailwind and be in the right place at the right time um, to, to accelerate the growth of the company. Right. No, it is. And as, as, again, I, it's always one of those subjects that's interesting to talk about because there's a lot of people that, that had negative scenarios from COVID fallout business and personal wise. But I always think it's very interesting to look at those industries where through no fault of your own, obviously, it wasn't like this was planned, but how there's been certain industries that this has really shone a light on and and said, you know what, we should be, or here's an option for us based on the fact that for, for a lot of restaurants during COVID, they, well, you've got to shut your doors. You, you can't have your doors open. You can't have people in. You can't do covers, which is how you make your, biz, uh, make your money. What are we going to do? Uh, and of course, then you saw a lot of uh, restaurants shift to, okay, well, we can, once the first lockdowns are over, we can do delivery, we can do roadside pickup, maybe some of these kind of things. But for a lot of restaurants, that was never, or rather, if it was on the plan, it was a good few years down the line, uh, or sure. it, was nowhere, it wasn't even in the plan. So, no, no, we don't do delivery. We don't do that. We are a restaurant. We want people to come here. We wanted to have the experience of, of, our, of our brand, of our people, of our food. Um, it was never about the takeaway or the delivery side of things. But then that 
that situation has kind of forced a lot of um, restaurants and I would uh, imagine other food and beverage outlets to reconsider that idea. Do you think that from from that perspective that if, because what you've just described as your growth is phenomenal in actually a very short period of time. Do you think that if it had been air quotes normal and COVID wasn't there, would, would you have expanded as quickly as you have no, absolutely not. I mean, I think we would have eventually gotten there, but instead of getting there in two years' time, I think maybe five, you know, twice, yeah. I think we've seen a two to three X acceleration of the adoption of this uh, business model and, and technology. Um, I mean, obviously the seeds were planted long before COVID kicked in, mm-hmm. you know, with the growth of the likes of Deliver Hero, Overeats, and consumer behavior shifting to the convenience of ordering food off of your phone. Um, but it was still quite nascent. Uh, we were talking two to three percent penetration of the F&B space. Uh, COVID just doubled that in 18 months. And, and with that doubling of penetration, you got a, a doubling of adoption and um, an accentuation of the friction points that the restaurants were facing. You know, they have to adapt to, to survive and they just simply were ill-equipped um, and, and to, to, to handle that sudden you know, tectonic change. So, um, and, and I think, you know, we were just in the right place at the right time. That said, though, you know, I, I, I'm always cautious to, to also say that, you know, while the headwinds of COVID were, were an accelerant to our growth, it did present us with numerous challenges. Um, the company was only three months old when we went into a complete lockdown. Right, yeah. um, so if you can imagine trying to recruit build a culture, um, you know, beyond just the two or three co-founders that started the company during a state of complete closure was nerve wracking. Um, That said, also funding, you know, you're you're a startup at the end of the day, you're bootstrapping, but you know, you do rely on investor funding to keep the gas in the tank for the car to keep going. And the world was scared. Nobody mm-hmm. knew, you know, if this was Armageddon and, 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 and at the end is near, or this was a temporary blimp in the history of, of the planet. And, and, you know, no investor that we spoke to at the time was willing to write a check. So, you know, we were anemic at best when it came down to our funding path and our runway, um, you know, reaching out to candidates for them to leave jobs at that moment to join a, a fragile startup was, you know, near damn impossible. Those yeah. who were brave enough to do it um, just said, you know, like, okay, well, who are you? Can I meet you? No, you can't, you know, like turn on your yeah. camera on your laptop. Let me explain to you what it is and how we're doing it. So it, it, it was incredibly difficult to navigate the internal ropes of building a startup during COVID and at the same time watching demand skyrocket for your product mm-hmm. and, 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 and struggling to meet that demand. So, you know, it, it, there are, there are positives to it, but it comes with a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, price. Yeah, I can imagine. Like I say, the, the, what a problem to have in terms of seeing that if we could just get this out the door, there's so many people that want this. Um, but yeah, the world has got other ideas at this point uh, from, from that perspective. With, with that, that particular point, when it comes to recruitment, how, how many people do you think you were not able to bring over to help you? Uh, how many of those were, were lost because of this, this sort of technology blip, if you like, that were, if, if I can't come and sit down in your office and meet you and have coffee and talk about what's going on, we're going to do this all on Zoom or Teams or whatever. 
do you think that you lost some people that could have come and had made, made a really big difference? I'm just asking this question just because of the impact of the technology on, on that specific area of building a business recruitment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, my number is arbitrary. I'd say I probably lost half of the candidates that I was speaking to because we couldn't meet physically. I, when you're pitching, when you're pitching, you know, a talented individual to leave the comforts of their their current safety net of a job, whether it be corporate or another startup, to jump in at such an early stage of your journey, a lot of what they buy is the founder's passion to the problem that they're solving and their leadership quotient and executing on that passion. And that is incredibly difficult to convey in a 2D Zoom or a Teams environment. You know, a lot of emotions get sanitized and they don't mm -hmm. convey as well. Versus when, you know, they're sitting in front of you, your body language, um, your tone of voice, um, you know, they, they, there's so much communication that gets conveyed over that can convince a candidate that, you know what, this guy actually knows what he's talking about, or no matter what happens, he's got the grit to get through it. And, and I'm, I'm sold on this idea. I'm going to go home and quit. So that's, that's one problem. The other problem is like, I mean, anybody who had a job pre-COVID was just going to hold on to it. Like, yeah. I mean, who knew, you know, if he left it, if there was any chance of finding another one, given companies were making people, you know, redundant, uh, pay cuts, uh, businesses were shutting down all over the world and, and to be honest there was no light at the end of the tunnel during the first three to six months of this you know the world was just trying to understand what the heck was going on so you know you, you had the added um you know, added obstacle of, of trying to convince somebody that even if this fails you can go back to your job no like i may not have a job to go back yeah to. so i'm just going to stay put and, and, and you know call me when this is all over kind of thing but you know, if I if I hearing myself talk this out, I also think that the first wave of candidates uh, or, or or leaders that we have in the organization were almost selected naturally because of this. You know, mm -hmm. they were the brave soul that had propensities for you know chaos and uncertainty and and, and it just you know had an undying belief in what you were trying to do and today i count the likes of tomorrow or ahmed and, and, and others that have joined the organization as employee number three or four you know that, that these are the, the pillars that that got us where we are today and that and that natural screening process okay got us the the crazies if you would that would be willing <laughs> to leave their jobs and and join a crazy startup so early you know and and they performed spectacularly well yeah, no, that's fantastic. And like you say, natural selection, right? To get those people in, they say, you know, yeah, given everything that's going on, I'm still going to come and join you and uh, and, and see what yeah. goes on. Some pretty cool people uh, and the kind of people, like you say, that you would want working alongside you to drive something something forwards. Um, speaking of driving things forwards, it was uh, one of the things that was sent through to me, and I'd like you just to talk a little bit about, because of what's going on now with Expo and so forth, this, um, I'm going to butcher it in terms of what it is, but it's something to do with 3D locker systems for delivery of food. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. So, tell us a bit um, about it. <laughs> we work very close. Sure, we work uh, very closely with Delivery Hero, and, and I'm sure you know your listeners have seen Expo 2020 in, in Dubai. Um, and at the heart of Expo is a cloud kitchen. 
where Kalabak, whatever the, the local platform for delivery here, here um, has numerous brands under one roof and customers can use their phone to place an order from any one of these brands. And obviously COVID and, and contactless delivery is you know, chief among safety measures at the moment. Um, they, they, they came up to us and said, how, how can we engineer this in a way that is cool, um, efficient, but also is safe for our customers to pick up their food rather than having to interact with somebody behind a counter. So, you know, our product and engineering teams got their heads together and, and, and we created this blocker system where you place an order and, and, and you, you know, you're, you're notified when it's ready. You come to a, a scanning device, you scan a QR code on your phone and a cubby will automatically kind of flash to indicate that that's where your food is. The door will automatically unlock. You open the door, you grab your food and off you go. Um, the issue is that the timelines were so aggressive um, that we couldn't manufacture this in the traditional manner of plastic molds or wood or steel. So, you know, being a tech company and, and, and a startup, um, we, we were resourceful um, and opted to 3D print these things. And to be honest with you, nobody knew if this thing is going to work like i mean our prototype came into the office and i just like you know looked down and i was like oh my god like this is just not gonna work um so we're lucky enough to, to have deployed about 50 of them in expo 2020 they're, right. they're, they're spectacular machines they were 3d printed locally here in dubai and, awesome. and you know there's a lot of pride of uh, you know about that and um, you know soon after they were unveiled we started getting orders from Saudi Arabia we got an order from an e-food hall we got an order from a company in, in Stockholm that was inquiring about them and, and, and you know demand for this product just kind of you know skyrocketed um, what is meant to be just a proof of concept and a you know a brag of our ability to build stuff ended up to be you know quite an important product for the organization now and we're looking at how we can maybe not continue to 3D print them, but be able to manufacture them at scale and supply them to our partners all over the world. So wow. we're not a hardware company, but we, we are going to be partnering with some some pretty smart people that know how to do this at scale and, and then figure out how to get them all over the world. Right. Yeah. I think it's a great example of how, uh, you know, people who have done it say, well, you if somebody comes and asks you, say yes and then you can figure out how how to do it and then what a great outcome in terms of figuring out to do it leveraging technology 3d printing this stuff and now it's potentially a uh, a pillar of your business that can be managed by like you say you're not a hardware company at the end of the day but why not partner with somebody that can do that you've come up with the proof of concept it works we know we can do it this way uh, now we can take it to the next level and i think that's also one of those um, messages especially for a lot of our listeners that once you start to get into this and you start to do your and you start to believe in yourself because you've managed to shift away from that identity of who you were it's amazing how you can do certain things, but I also think it's amazing how you start to identify opportunities that you perhaps would never have seen before. And is that something that you can identify with, Mohammed? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Um, and whatever you have in your head when you're thinking about your startup as the path that you will get to success through, uh, I can without a shadow without tell you it's not gonna work. It's not. <laughs> uh, there are so it's not gonna work. There are so many, you know, twists and bends and bumps and turns throughout this whole journey that you just have to approach it with exactly what you said, uh, you know, an open mind and open to listen. Um, you start to see opportunities that you've never considered. Uh, say yes 
and, and don't be scared to fail. But through that process of, you know, failure iteration, you will get to success. Um, so, you know, you, there is no book yet you can read that tells you exactly how to do it. There is no podcast you can listen to that tells you exactly how to do it. And, you know, the Elon Musks of the world and, and, and the many successful entrepreneurs um, that have shared their stories are just simply, that's their experience. And unfortunately, no two experiences are the same. There, you know, there's conditions, whether they're macro conditions, micro conditions uh, that play into this, that are variable well beyond your control that make, you know, a playbook um, unreplicatable. So my philosophy is always fall back on frameworks rather than step one, two, and three. And framework pillars could be exactly what you said, you know, just have an open mind, um, look for pattern recognition across some of the stuff that you're familiar with, um, embrace failure, you know, you got to have so much conviction to keep fueling you to wake up the next day and do it over and over again. So these are the things that you can learn from the masters, if you would, that have been there and done that rather than, okay, on the first day of the week, he's done this on the second day of the week, he's done that. It just simply doesn't work that way. No, no, I think, and that's actually a message that through a lot of people we've spoken to has come through that uh, you have to have a business plan, of course, and you have to have a plan and a strategy, but be prepared for it to change drastically as soon as you go live with whatever it is that you're doing. And that's okay. And that you, what you get, it's like a professional fighter. So you go out with your business or your action plan for, for your opponent. And as soon as you get punched in the face, it changes because it, now it, something's happening that, okay, right. That, that hurt. <laughs> and, uh, now I've got to get yeah. myself together and, and figure out what, what was I doing? What was my plan again? Um, and in business, I think it's the same is that you can have this idea of I'm going to manufacture, I'm going to provide this service and it's going to be this. And as soon as you get your first customer, your first customer tells you, you know what? I don't like it. It's yellow. And you're like, Oh, okay. Well, but we make green, we make yellow ones. Yeah, but if you made it green, then people would probably like that more. And then you do the research and you're like, Oh, okay. Just because I like yellow doesn't make that this is a, and, Everything is fluid, you know, when it comes to this. And I think it's also something that becomes very apparent, but difficult for a lot of entrepreneurs and business people sometimes to get ahead of is that in a lot of scenarios, your opinion of what it is that's going out there doesn't really matter that much versus what your market is saying. You know what? We need a tool that does this. If you can make it do this, we will, we will buy it from you, which at the end of the day, a transaction has to happen for a business to exist. And I think some people forget that and say, no, but I've got this idea for this really cool product. It's like, it's a great idea. It is a cool product, but if nobody wants to buy it from you, you don't have a business. And, and the, the question in that then is um, with, with this new found ability to identify opportunities and see them everywhere, how do you make sure that you don't go after all of them? Because I think this is something, this is something I suffered from when I started the shiny object syndrome. It's like, oh, so many, so many things that we could do that are, in my mind, they're related to what I do in my business, but actually they're not. How do you stop yourself from getting distracted by some of those things? No, um, I still suffer from that, <laughs> is the short <laughs> answer. Um, I think, you know, some, one of my mentors early on said, most startups die of overeating rather than of starvation you know and basically you know i think it was just trying to cleverly share that you, you you can easily die from pursuing so many and i think jack ma also has a statement if you want to catch a rabbit don't look at all the rabbits focus on one rabbit 
and chase that until you get it. So, you know, the, the, there's a lot of wisdom out there that, that, that tells you that you really need to be laser focused on, on the one. Um, if I reflect on our experience, I'd say, I don't think we have the luxury of being able to laser focus on just one thing, um, especially during the early days. You literally kind of have to shoot at everything that moves. And then if you start to get really good at hitting a target, that's when you can just start to put blinders on and start shooting faster at it. Um, but, you know, you, 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 you have to have that open mind and that flexibility to be able to, 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 to take small bets rather than expensive bets mm-hmm. um, on, on things that you feel are, are opportunistic and, and could generate the revenue, the traction, the scale that your organization needs uh, rather than be quite narrow-minded on one specific friction point or problem and, and, and just you know try to crack the code on that. I don't know if it's the right way to do it you know to be honest with you i don't have enough conviction to say that's absolutely the right way and everybody else is wrong i've always struggled struggled for by chasing the shiny penny the, mm-hmm. I, I have that affliction so rather than try to break that pattern i'm kind of embracing it and seeing how i can turn that obsession with seizing opportunity into a workable successful model um can't say i cracked the code yet but but i'm not as offended by it as I was, let's yeah. say, two years ago, because I think that's what got us to 3D print locker systems, right? Yeah. Which have nothing to do with what we started out to do, but we found a good revenue stream and a good differentiation for our company that our competition doesn't do. So, you know, I think there's a balance between chasing everything, um, but being sensible at what you do and, and, and how you chase it. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, whichever approach that you are taking is working for you, Mohammed. you're doing some amazing things. So um, that, that don't, don't change that from that perspective. Um, one of the, the questions I like to ask just before we end us for of everybody that I talk to is, is about you as an individual, because you have made this transition. You've been in a seriously powerful position in the corporate world. You're now building an organization that's expanding massively quick, quickly and helping out across the world. How do you keep Mohammed? Um, focused and 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 moving forward because this I suppose it's a, a, a roundabout way of talking about your own well being from that side of things. As 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 the the man, how do you or what do you do in your daily routines that helps you do that? Is there some specific resources? Is there some specific books, people? You mentioned mentors, obviously. Is there something that you would recommend for anyone that's out there, either thinking about making this jump, has made the jump and is now questioning whether or not that was the right decision? Um, what, what do you do from that side of things? Look, I, I, I think, you know, um, if you don't take care of yourself on day zero and this journey, you're going to fall apart real quick. And right. There's just so much pressure, both physical and mental, that if you are not in tip-top shape, um, you are going to break. Whether you'll, your fuse starts to get shorter, you'll start to get cloudy, um, you know, mind and make poor decisions, which will impact everybody, right? I mean, today we have 80 employees, and I look at them every morning and say, you know, they have wives, husbands, children, you know, moms and dads that they may be supporting. And, you know, if I screw up, today, these guys will be adversely impacted. And that's a tremendous burden um, to carry as a founder or a CEO of an organization. So I made a decision right around the time that um, I was leaving my job to, to start this company that, you know, my well-being will be the number one priority um, that I will focus on. So I rewinded the clock 
uh, or the alarm clock, I should say, to waking up around 4.45 in the morning um, from the usual 6.37. And um, at first, you know, it's very painful. You know, your, your body's saying, please, no, I want to sleep. You know, what are you doing to me? Um, and then, but I, 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 incremental improvements, right? So I get up at 4.45, but I wouldn't do anything. I'd just sit on the recliner and just kind of like, you know, let the thoughts and emotions come through. Um, and then as the house, I, I, you know, wakes up, I, I would engage with my family, get shower dressed, and off I went. Um, but then, you know, start to use that time a little wiser and, and you layer in, you know, meditation. And a great app for that is Headspace. So I, I wake up, you know, and, and meditate for 15 minutes. That kind of level set my emotions and, and, and the stress levels and, and, and got me going with my day. But that, you know, I still had about an hour and a half, two hours to burn before the world woke up. So after layering in meditation, I, I started going to the gym. So, you know, now the routine on um, six, six days a week is, you know, 4.45 up and out of bed. Five o'clock to five fifteen, uh, a meditation um, followed by a quick stretching session out the door to the gym. You know, I'm usually there by five forty-five at the latest. Uh, a good hour of, of, of weightlifting, cardio, or whatever the, the routine is of that day, and I'm usually home by six forty-five, seven o'clock. You know, ready to face whatever challenges that, that start. And if I tell you today. If I didn't have these two pillars, meditation and working out in my life over the last two years, there would be no way I would have gone through the emotional turmoil of a startup. You know, when you look at the bank account and you know you have five days worth of runway, you know, you, you literally break down. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a piece of your soul that just kind of goes haywire. <laughs> that, 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 that you have to have these safety mechanisms that, that you know, are tested scientifically proven studied for umpteenth years that are meant to you know be crutches and, and, and bedrocks for how you continue to face these these uh, these challenges so um i was lucky enough to adopt them um and you know they stuck through and you know it's been two years now that if i don't get up this early or if i don't work out or if i don't meditate i'm just gonna have a bad day and i'm yeah. almost i can you know, guarantee that I'm just not going to be in the, you know, the, in the performance level that would make me happy. So um, that's something that, you know, I advise all your listeners um, listening today to, to look at. Maybe my formula is not the right one for them, but you've got to take care of yourself because mm -hmm. you're about to go through something incredibly challenging and will stretch both your physical and your emotional well-being to, to levels you've never thought possible. And, and if you can't cope with that, Stay, stay in corporate world. Like startup land is going to just, you know, break you. Break you. Yeah. No, I think that's such valuable advice, and it's something again. A lot of, a lot of people we've talked to, the physical element, working out, whether it's working out, whether it's weights, whether it's going for a walk, meditation, something that you get routine. And I think that it's, uh, you know, you said you're lucky. I don't think you're lucky. I think you've made the work happen to get you into this position to, because to, you know how important that is for you to be the best version of Muhammad that can turn up every day for your family, for your employees, for your business. And I think it's a, it's a really, really important one. It's one that I'm aspiring to as well. I've, uh, since having my uh, second child, I've let the, the, the physical uh, side of things go a little bit, but we're just making reparations there and getting back into that routine because I've noticed it's it's once you see it so glaringly obvious i've noticed that it's impacting me massively in the business that i'm doing so i'm not the 
the person that I should be because I haven't done this this physical element, which is I think uh, a lot of people sometimes gloss over and forget about it because it's like, well, I've got to work eighteen hour days and I've got to be in the office and show everybody that I'm, you know, I'm really going after this. It's like, well, you probably will have to put in eighteen hour shifts, but if you haven't been taking care of yourself, you'll burn out really quickly. Like you say, you'll you'll break and uh, and then you're no good to anybody. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, no, top, top uh, advice there, Mohammed. And I really appreciate um, the input, the the discussion. Thank you very much for taking the time, Mohammed. It's been a real You're pleasure. You're very welcome. Likewise, sir. I had a lot of fun talking. Thank you so much for giving me the, the opportunity, guys. And I wish everybody listening to me today talking the, the best of success and the best of well-being. Stay safe out there. Awesome. Thanks again, Mohammed. And to everybody listening, thanks for tuning in to this episode. As always, if there's anyone that you'd like us to speak to, please drop us a line at wishlist at swanglinese.rocks. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Swanglinese with your hosts, Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Endermo. We'll catch you next time.